It's time to dream again of a church that is devoted, that is generous, and that is sharing the love of Christ. I love what it says there in those opening couple of verses in verse 42. They devoted themselves. As a church, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the Bible, to fellowship with one another, and to prayer. I mean, it was full on what they were doing as a church. It was full on what they were known for as a church. But you see, the early church, the early Christians had just seen Jesus die on a cross. They were happy to be fully devoted and full on because what they had seen Jesus go through for each one of them. They knew that this was something to be fully devoted to. And you see, the fully devoted church is something that fills those around them with awe. The fully devoted church is one that has signs and wonders following. The fully devoted church is one that sees lives changed. It's time to dream again of a church that is fully devoted to God's word, to prayer, and to one another. But they weren't just devoted to the word and one another and prayer. They were generous, verses 44 to 45. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and gave to one another. There was no needy person amongst them. There was crazy generosity in the life of the early church. Now let me say, Hope Church has always been an incredibly generous church. In 2020, when lockdown was at its height, this church gave incredible sums of money to Colombia, to Zimbabwe, to refugees here in Newark. And then last year, as we looked to take on this building, when this church was at its smallest that it had been for years, it gave the largest special offering that has ever been given. Generosity generosity that is flowing from the life of the church. Hope Church, it's time to dream again of generosity, radical generosity that is given to missions. But not only was the early church one that was devoted and generous, it shared the love of Christ. Verse 47, it says there that daily people came to Christ. Daily people were saved. Hope Church, it's time to dream again, to dream of our friends and family being saved and being added to God's family. It's time to dream again that as we sow the seeds of the gospel, we would see fruit. I love the parable of the sower because it tells us that as we sow, there's a 25% success rate. It says, as we sow, some will fall on good ground. We're to be a church that dreams again to invite people to come to follow, to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It's time to dream again from Acts chapter 2 of a church that is devoted, of a church that is generous, radically generous, and a church that shares the love of Jesus. Second snapshot from the early church. We're going to turn to Acts 13. Verses 1 to 3. Acts 13, verses 1 to 3. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. There was Barnabas, Simon, Simeon, sorry, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, 
Mannion, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Acts 13 is the turning point in church history. Acts 13 is the point where the church goes out. Church is turned inside out from this moment on. And what I love in Acts 13 is the diversity of the church. In that first verse of Acts 13, there is incredible diversity. First, we have that there was prophets and teachers there in Antioch. Prophets who were thinking about the future and teachers who were rooted in God's word and in the past. Prophets who had the the Rima word of God and and teachers who had the, the Logos, timeless word of God. And look at the people that are named Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who was a Jew. He was kind of the Robin to Paul's Batman. There was Simeon from Niger, who was a black man. There was Lucius of Cyrene from a coastal town in North Africa. There was Mannion, who was upper class, a part of the court of Herod, an upper class man. And then there was Saul himself, Saul the terrorist, who became known as Paul. Right there in the DNA of the church, as the church is sent out, it is diverse and it is creative. Hope Church before me today is a diverse church of black and brown and white, of many nationalities, of rich and poor, of old and young. And we celebrate God's creativity and God's diversity. There's such a beautiful diversity in the fact that we are united in Jesus Christ. Different in so many ways, but united in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 verse 28, neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Acts 13 is this sending out moment. Sending out moment, AD 47, that's roughly when Acts 13 took place, between AD 47 and AD 57. So in the span of 10 years, Paul does three missionary journeys. He roughly, the commentators think, traveled 10,000 miles preaching the gospel. And it began here in Acts 13. And every church plant that Paul planted and every epistle that Paul wrote, and every man and woman that was saved under the preaching of Paul, you can trace back to this moment in Acts 13. So I want you to hold on to something and think something for a moment. Put your your thinking hats on for a moment. All of these churches are a dream within a dream. All that happens from Acts 13 onwards It is a dream within a dream within a dream. I wonder, many of you probably have seen the film Inception. Christopher Nolan film from 2010. If you haven't, I'll give you a quick summary. So in this film, there are extractors who will infiltrate the subconscious minds of their targets. They will extract information while their targets are in a dream-like state. One of the extractors is Leonardo DiCaprio. 
Now, Leonardo goes beyond this because he tries something different. He tries inception. You see, instead of extracting an idea out of the subconscious, he plants an idea into the subconscious and into the mind of the target. I love this because I think that's a real wonderful picture of what the Holy Spirit does. It's how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit plants ideas and dreams into our subconscious. Now, in the film, one of the extractors asks, how does this work? And how deep do you need to plant the idea? Three levels down, Leonardo says. Three levels down, you plant the idea. Three levels down. A dream within a dream within a dream. That whole idea frames the film. The whole idea itself comes from a poem by Edgar Allan Poe, but that that whole concept is, is framed in the film. Now, back to the book of Acts for a moment. You see, the diversity and creativity of Acts 13, that moment, that moment of sending out, that moment of diversity, it leads to a dream within a dream within a dream. You see, we all eat from fields that we did not plant. We all live in houses that we did not build. No one dreams in a vacuum. The dream, which is called Hope Church, which was called Hope Church 12 years ago when it began in a school called Cerebonell School, not far from here, in Stratford. The dream that was the reality 12 years ago of Hope Church Newham started further back than that. It started in, in a Baptist church in Gans Hill when I was saved age 13 and baptized and felt a call to ministry. It started further back 25 years ago when I went to Mumbai, India, and the dream became refined in a fire. A dream within a dream within a dream. You see, a legacy is what you accomplish, sorry, is what others accomplish because of you. That's what a legacy is. What other people build upon what you have done. Success is often growing fruit on someone else's tree. And in the book of Acts, all the revivals and all the church plants and all the miracles they're beginning, they begin in this moment in Acts 13. They begin in inception at the church in Antioch. So listen, I want to take this forward now for a moment. Hope Church, at this moment, it's a time to dream again. In the diversity and creativity in this room, it's time to dream again. It's time to dream of churches that might be planted. It's time to dream of businesses as mission. It's time to dream of kingdom causes that God might be speaking to you about. To say, Lord, make this happen. It's time to dream again. The church in its diversity. The church in its creativity. A dream within a dream within a dream. We build on one another's dreams. We support one another. We speak into one another's dreams and creativity 
and see God's kingdom come and will be done. Third and final part that we're going to look at from the book of Acts. We're going to turn to Acts 17. This is Paul's second missionary journey, and he finds himself in Athens. I'm not going to read the whole passage. We're going to jump around a couple of bits from Acts 17. It's a, it's a brilliant passage of how Paul interacts with the gospel, with a culture that is far from God. Let me read Acts 17, verses 16 to 18. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. There's a bit more on the next slide, I think. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul goes to Athens and he goes to the marketplace. He goes to the Aragophagus. He goes to the place of ideas. He engages with the world. He does not sit separate and set apart. He engages with the world. He looks to bless this city that he's just come to. He's looked to share what he is for and not speak about what he is against. And verse 18, he gets caught in this crossfire. He gets caught in this crossfire between the Epicureans, who those who are those who said life is what you should eat and drink and be merry, And the Stoics, who are those who said, no, it's all about moderation. It's all about being serious. And Paul's strategy here is brilliant because what he does is not debate with one or the other. No, no, no. He doesn't debate morals or ethics. He just preaches Jesus and the resurrection. You see, he speaks about Christianity and what is unique about Christianity, the empty tomb. That, that Jesus has defeated death, that there is no grave to Jesus Christ because the only grave is an empty one. He speaks about the fact that Jesus is alive, that there is a risen Savior. That's what he does. That's what Paul does. He comes to a new city. He goes into the darkness. He lights a candle and he speaks about the resurrection. He speaks about Jesus. He doesn't debate the whys and the wherefores. He doesn't debate the morals and the ethics. He just shines the light, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 22 to 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragophagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made of man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and, and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. What's, what's Paul doing here? He, he's saying, look, world is spiritual. The world we live in today is incredibly spiritual. Yes, it's less religious, but it's incredibly spiritual. They were there building an altar to an unknown God. They, they, they didn't quite understand what was this and what was that, but, but they were incredibly spiritual. They believed that there was something else, someone else, some other higher power of being. And Paul walks into this situation and says, look, I want to tell you what the answer to your spiritual questions are. And the answers is Jesus. But what he does in verse 28 is he actually uses the culture to connect the dots. He quotes a poet of the time, Epinudis. He quotes him as the one to point people to Jesus. You see, Paul is being this incredible evangelist right in the center of darkness in the city of Athens. He's using the culture to point people to Jesus. He's not getting involved in different debates, but he's proclaiming the resurrection and Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Let's look at the impact, verse 32 to 34. What's the impact? When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Aragophagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Paul brings light to the darkness, and it ends with Dionysius becoming a Christian. There's some others as well, but Dionysius becoming a Christian, and he became the first bishop of Athens according to church history. Here's the point I want to make. When we go into the darkness and proclaim Jesus and shine the light... It's not about the multitude. It's not about the numbers. It's about people. It's about individual people connecting with the gospel. Individual people being touched and changed and transformed by the good news of Jesus. In your life, in your workplace, where God has placed you, my challenge to you is where you are, shine the light. Bring your candle to the darkness. Be the church to the person that may never step inside these four walls. And see what God will do. Who is in front of me? Who will be impacted by my light as I shine it at work? Who will be impacted by my light as I shine it in my street? Who will be impacted by my light as I shine it with my friendship circle? As I speak about Jesus, as I speak about the resurrection, as I connect culture with the gospel, who will be connected? And in the ones and in the twos, church history can then be shaped and changed. 
Because Paul's message in the Aragophagus changed the life of Dionysius, who became the Bishop of Athens. Church, when we shine the light, when we speak for Jesus, it's about the one. It's not necessarily about the multitude. It's about the one who hears, who connects, who listens, who takes on board what God has spoken to them about. Okay, I want to sum up with a challenge. I want to finish with a challenge, two challenges to to all of us. So we've said it's time to dream. It's time to dream of a church, a church that is generous, a church that shares the love of Jesus, a church that is devoted, a, a church that is creative, a church that is diverse, and a church that shines the light of Jesus. Two challenges. Number one. We're to consecrate ourselves before the Lord. Joshua 3 and verse 5 says this. Consecrate yourselves before the Lord, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders amongst you. The responsibility for the first part of the verse is on us. The responsibility for the second part of the verse is on God. We are called to consecrate our lives before the Lord. The miracles, the wonders, all that is down to God and God alone. What does it mean to consecrate, Mark? It's an old school word. What does it mean? Consecration. What does it mean? Let me just tell you what it looks like. Unpack it. To consecrate your life before the Lord. It means depending on God above yourself. It means spending time alone with God, whether just short moments or long stretches of time. It means putting the Bible as the central place that you go to rather than your phone or social media or or any other place. It means you go to worship first and not to worry. It means you fast at times because you're so desperate for more of the Lord. You see, consecration is the part that you can do. Consecration is the part that no one else can do. Consecration is the part even that God alone cannot do. Consecration is what we do. And listen, when we find intimacy before the Lord, when we come to that secret place, when we find and we consecrate ourselves before the Lord, then it draws you out to others. That's the model that Jesus gives us. Because Jesus went alone to be with the Father and then was drawn to the crowds and drawn to the sick and drawn to those he wanted to help and he wanted to bless. But it was intimacy first that then drew him to the crowds and to the people. We haven't got time, but we could unpack Isaiah chapter 6. There we have the same principle. Isaiah has this vision before the Lord, his holiness, his power, his authority. He's touched by God's holiness and power. And then his, his, his response is, here I am, send me. You see, it's from intimacy, from consecration, from spending time alone with the Lord, of setting our priorities right. It's from doing that first that then we're to be propelled out into the world. Consecrate yourselves before the Lord. And then tomorrow, God will do miracles. God will do things that you cannot imagine. God will do things that are nothing down to you, that are not down to your holiness or your excellence or your gifting, but down to his power alone. So the challenge this morning is twofold. Firstly, 
The challenge is to consecrate ourselves before the Lord. That's the part that we can do. And then secondly, the second challenge is the uniqueness. The uniqueness of each one of us. The second challenge is the uniqueness that God has called us to. The second challenge is to be unique in the gifting and the calling that God has put inside each one of us. Numbers chapter 11. It's worth your time to go and read maybe later today or during the week. But Numbers chapter 11 talks about the tent of meeting. Talks there where, where God ordains that 70 of the elders of the, uh, of the nation of Israel come. And they come and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And God speaks to them. But then there are two men. They have brilliant names, these two men. Eldad and Medad. I mean, you think it was made up unless it's in the Bible. But Eldad and Medad, brilliant names. Okay? And, and, and they mess in the best possible way, they mess with this formula that that Moses and the Israelites think has been put forward by God. The formula that God speaks in the tent of meeting to the 70 elders. But Medad and Eldad then come prophesying into the camp. And it blows their minds. I'm just going to read Numbers 11, starting at verse 26 to verse 30. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad, see I'm not making it up, and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. So they had prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, listen, Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, from his youth said, my Lord, Moses, stop them. In other words, they can't do this. It's not in the formula. It's not in the way God used to set it up. This is outside of the box. Verse 29. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. In other words, Moses says, this is great. It's great. They're full of the Spirit. They're prophesying in the camp. Brilliant. Brilliant. Don't box God in. Don't put God in a box. There's no set formula. God can work outside of any of our formulas and any of our ways of doing things. A year ago, our 11th anniversary, which was online, I preached a message out of Isaiah 43. See, I am doing a new thing. Many of you who were part of the church back then got a little red book that said on it, see, I am doing a new thing. And that's great. But we struggle because we don't know what that new thing is. And we don't quite know how that new thing fits with the boxes and the formulas that we have laid out in the past. But God says... The two things I want each of you to do and for us, Hope Church, to do as a church is to consecrate yourselves before the Lord and to be ready to be uniquely used by God. 
to not worry about a past formula, to not worry about being boxed into certain ways of doing things, because see, I am doing a new thing. It's time to dream again. Hope Church, it's time to dream again. With all the challenges we faced over the last two years, with all the ups and the downs and the disappointments and the heartache and the pain and the struggles, it's time to dream again. Dreaming is a stewardship issue. And it's being like God in creating and thinking outside of the box and shining a light in the darkness. What we're going to do in a moment is I'm going to pray. And then we're going to spend some time in worship. The band are going to come up in a moment and we're going to worship. We've got a couple of songs lined up. We're going to worship. And I want us to be open as we sing these songs and as we worship for God to speak to us. God to drop things into our minds and into our hearts. God to drop an inception of a dream within a dream within a dream of what might be possible in this new season. It's time to dream again, Hope Church. To be a church that is devoted, a church that is generous, a church that shares the love of Jesus, a church that is beautifully diverse and creative, and a church that brings light to the darkness. Let's stand. And Ban, why don't you come up as I 